So oh, go ahead and open your Bible to Judges chapter 2. By the way, next week we will not have a gathering here. University Plaza is not available for us next week. They already have a, a thing booked. And, and so next week there is no gathering. You guys take the week off. And then we will be back here the following week um, for, for church. So no gathering next week. So Judges chapter 2, we introduced a new series. And here's one of the questions I asked you last week. Um, when we think about Israel, if we could have taken the leaders of Israel and put them in a time machine and fast forwarded and took that time machine 350 to 400 years in the future, one of the questions we asked, would they still make the decision that they made? Because we saw last week what happens with Israel is God gives them a very clear command, a very clear um, direction, and all Israel did was start making little, little bitty decisions of disobedience. God made a covenant with Israel. He said, I'll be your God. I'll give you a land. I'll give you an inheritance. But his demands were that they serve him alone. No other gods. And here's what God told him. And we looked at this last week. And this is Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord your God gives them over to you, that's their, their enemies, and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. So what we see God say is, look, I have this land for you. There's people in there, in that land, and I want you to drive them out of that land. And one of the questions we asked last week, which if you weren't here, you need to listen to last week's sermons. It's going to set the stage for much of what we're talking about. It's on our podcast on our website. We ask why God would do that. And I think we're going to see, we saw it last, we're going to see this week what happens when little bitty acts of disobedience occur. Because Israel goes in and they fight the people in that land. And they have victory. But they lack the last step, which was to completely drive them out. A little act of disobedience is going to lead to the decline of an entire nation. So we talked about last week is that disobedience leads to spiritual apathy. Just, eh. But apathy leads to apostasy, which is completely walking away from God. And that's what's going to happen in the life of Israel. And so what we said last week is all of us must take sin seriously. We must kill sin and not go down that slippery, slippery road of disobedience apathy, apostasy. One of my favorite TV shows um, I've ever watched is Breaking Bad. Anyone? Breaking Bad fans. One of the things that's cool, that's I, well, not cool, but that's interesting about Breaking Bad is you see this kind of nerdy science teacher start making little bitty decisions through the course of the entire se season and series of, of that show. You see this just like slow slide into absolute immorality and destruction. And that's what we're going to see in the life of Israel. Look at Judges chapter 2, verse 6. So apathy has taken root in Israel. And here's what judges say. When Joshua dismissed the people, remember Joshua is the one that led them to defeat the enemies. The people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. So there's 12 tribes of Israel, and they each go to their own little section of this promised land, this big area 
to now take possession of it, continue to drive the enemies out. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him within the boundaries of an inheritance in Tamath Herez in the hills country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. They all died eventually. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So Israel's defeated their enemies, and they defeated them so much that, that they're able to kind of disband the military. Because before you have all these tribes together to go conquer the land, well, it becomes like, like they've conquered the land. So Joshua says, hey, we're, we're okay here. We don't need all the military together. So each of you go off to your own area with the assumption that if there's any people left in your area, that you would continue to drive them out. Now, what we saw last week is when they all went to their own area, they did not drive them out, and instead they just kind of blended in with them. And one of the questions we asked like last week is, can you blame them? Because they've been wandering for 40 years, and to come into a city with resources and culture and food and music and, and all this stuff, it, I mean, it makes sense just to blend in. Well, that's what happened and so, but we have this, we, it appears that we have this idea of peace. Like these, these you can, can think about these old men who are battle-scarred. I mean, read Joshua. They've been through some battles. These old men who are battle-scarred and just tested and worn, like they go off to their own land, and we have this idea like finally Israel's at peace. But what we see is that this generation, though they did some great things for God, failed to pass that faith and that inheritance on to their children. Disobedience is a slow slide. Even though they conquered great things, they become, they become apathetic and they don't pass it on to their children. Verse 10, the second part of that, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And it makes me ask the question, Why? Why would they not pass that on? Why would they not tell those stories to their kids? And again, I don't want to take the moral high road. Um, these guys have been through it. They've been through battle. We know what, what it's like for soldiers to come home and maybe relive some of those experiences. Was it that? We don't know. But whatever happened, they didn't pass it on. And another generation rises up that doesn't know what God had done. Parents, it's Father's Day. Where the knowledge of God is preserved, faith and obedience follow. Where the knowledge of God is not prevalent, it's not preserved, ignorance, unbelief, and destruction follow. And that's what you see in Israel. Parents, one of the things we teach you, you are the primary disciple maker of your children. It's not the church's job to teach your children. It's our job to teach our children. So Joshua sends this generation that does great things, but they fail in passing it on to their children. They neglect their responsibility there. We have a parent conference coming up in the fall. Our goal is continually to teach parents how to disciple their children because we believe that parents are the primary disciple makers of their kids. Parents, don't just teach morality. Teach the gospel. 
Don't just teach rules for rules' sakes. Teach the why. One of the things I hear as I disciple young people, and I heard this just a few weeks ago, someone said this, quote, I grew up in a Christian home, but not in a godly home. And so this person grew up going to church three times a week, but that was the extent of what faith looked like in their family. So it's like, yeah, we're a Christian home, but it wasn't a godly home. Parents, don't shelter your children. Teach them how to navigate a broken and sinful world. Parents, don't involve your children in church. Teach them the gospel. One of the things I hear from, it's, it's kind of funny, is that people will kind of walk away from church in their 20s and they'll get married and they'll, they'll have a baby and they say, well, we need, to get our, we need to get our kids back in church. Can I tell you something? Church will not fix them. It just becomes a neat little hobby where they go play some games. Teach, we must, and I'm talking to myself, we must teach our children the gospel. One of the things that we learn is, as, as children go into teenagers, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, the thing was like really cool youth groups where you had rock and roll bands and you sing Taylor Swift songs and rewrite them into gospel songs and all that sort of thing. And just try to entertain kids. And here's what we found, we meaning church leaders, the whole like cool big youth ministry thing, it doesn't work. You know why? It's not supposed to. The gospel is what works. Relationship, discipleship relationships with other people is what works because that's what the Bible tells us to do. There's a great book that was written and, and the premise of this book is, and this is parents, this is for you. I'm, I'm close to having a teenager in my house that in order for faith to stick from high school to college, here's what our children need is five adult relationships in their life that will encourage the gospel and faith. Five. One of the conversations that Emily and I had this week, we have our oldest daughter, Erin, in the next years to help her, we're going to make a list of five. Five people that will invest in her and go fight for her and for her faith. And some of you are on my list or out here. Five people that can partner with our children and help us make disciples. Parents, hear me. Children don't need your perfection. They don't need you to have all your stuff together. They just need to see the gospel played out. Which means I must repent in front of them. And I must say, hey, girls, yeah, dad messes up sometimes. And that's why I need Jesus to continually forgive me. They don't need a perfect dad. They need a dad that displays the gospel to them. This generation, we're a young church here. This generation of Hill City, may we not teach morals and church to our children, but we may, may we pass on the gospel to our children to see them flourish. So understand, we are teaching something, and these leaders of Israel were teaching their children something. It's just not the something that would lead them to where they need to go. Parents, we're teaching something. Are we teaching that Jesus really doesn't matter much? Are we teaching that Christianity is just kind of the thing we do once a week on Sundays? Or are we teaching them that true contentment is found in Christ? And I'm preaching to myself. One generation failed to pass to another, and now we see the slide into Israel completely walking away from God. Verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, that's the God of the Canaanites. 
And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Did you see that word? They abandoned disobedience, apathy, apostasy. One generation. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. Remember, that's why God said, drive them out, because God knew they would, if they would left them there, they would just start following their gods. And that's what happened. And they chased after the gods, the people around them, and they bowed down to them. And they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. And so we see that because one generation failed to teach the next, we see that Israel slides into completely walking away from God, and they turn to different idols, to these other gods. And what we're going to learn is that God hates his children turning to idols. And we, so we name this, this series Cycles. And if you'll throw up that graphic on the screen, here's why we name this series Cycles. Because we're going to see through every chapter of Judges the same cycle played out. And here's what's going to happen. The people will rebel, which is what they did. And after they rebel, God is going to get very angry. We'll talk about that. In a, we'll talk about all these today. God's going to get angry. They will be oppressed by an enemy. An enemy will come in. One of the nations they were supposed to drive out will come and they will conquer them. And the people will suffer. Number four, the people will cry out in a kind of pseudo-repentance, saying, man, we messed up, God. Now we're, now we're talking about this enemy. Please come and deliver us. God will send salvation through a judge. We'll talk about that in a second. Israel will be at peace. The judge will die. And whew, back into the cycle we go. Every single chapter of the book of Judges will follow this pattern. And so what happens is God says, drive them out. They don't do it. They all go to their own area. They start to blend in. And the people rebel. They turn to idols. Um, in our idea of idol, here's what, let's, let's take the idol, you know, we always, when we think of idol, we think of like a big cow, like golden cow or something, like or a big Buddha statue. Can we reorient our thinking of what an idol is? Here's what I want to maybe put out as an idol. An idol is anything put up on a pedestal, real or imagined, as a means for acceptance, love, and meaning. See, idol's not just a statue. An idol's anything that I put up and say, I will live towards that. One author said this, taking a, an idol is taking an incomplete joy. I love that phrase. Taking an incomplete joy of the world and building your life upon it. An incomplete joy, because here's what you're going to see. Idols sometimes are good things. I'm not going to say all these things are bad, but they're incomplete because ultimately they won't do it. They won't satisfy you. We looked at Philippians this whole spring. Hopefully we know that by now. So taking an incomplete joy of the world and building our life upon it. So the human heart takes good things like career, money, sex, family, children, and it turns those things into ultimate things. That's an idol. And ultimately, like, all of us want to go, yeah, like, yeah, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, like, that's really bad that people do that. No, here's the thing about idols. Most of them are good things. Family. Career. Children. Consumerism. Like, don't think of idols as bad things. 
Because the most dangerous ones are the good ones. The greater the thing is, the more likely it is to become an idol and we would lift it up and expect it to meet our needs and hopes. So the people are going to turn to idols and what's funny is as silly as we would, like we would look at them and be like, I can't believe you guys make a calf and put it up. The goal of this series would be for us to see our own idolatry as really, really foolish. So an idol is taking anything and putting it up in the place of ultimate and saying, I, if I have this, whatever this is, I will be complete, I'll be satisfied, I'll have this sense of fulfillment. It could be any of those things I mentioned. So you see a guy that, uh, his father, you see a guy that, that works 60, 70, 80 hours a week, starts neglecting his family. You know what his idol is? His idol is the career, the glory that comes with the road, and therefore everything else has to fall by the wayside if I have this. They started worshiping idols. One of the things we teach, though, is that every, underneath every what we'll call surface idol, power, money, sex, relationships, children, underneath everything, a little bit deeper, we have this thing we call heart idols. And they're the things that fuel our pursuit of the other. So here's some examples of heart idols. Acceptance. Being viewed as adequate, kind of fitting in. So when acceptance becomes my idol, I will do anything to get a sense of acceptance. Here's another idol, approval. It's, it's based in pleasing others. If I can just get to this, then other people will see me as desirable, will see me as successful, will see me as talented. Here's another idol, control. Things must go my way and I'm going to make them. And if they don't, I have no contentment. I'm discontent. Idol of pleasure. Like every, I got to experience everything. And so all these things are idols because what they tell us in our mind is if I, can just, if I can just attain that, then I will be accepted, then I'll be happy, then I'll be content. So an idol is not just about external actions, it's about the heart. So here's the question we must ask ourselves, because Israel turns to idols, they turn to, to, to other things, and the question we must ask ourselves, what am I turning to for acceptance, love, and meaning? What is the thing that I need to feel love, to feel acceptance, to have a sense of meaning in my life? Or how about this, what do I desire? What is the thing I think on the most, and I desire that? That is your God. See, idols fool us into thinking, if I can just get that, then I will be complete. And remember, idols can be good things. Over these past few weeks, knowing that we're going to hire these three, you know how quickly, how easy that could become an idol in my life? Man, when we just get these three more people on staff, then Hill City will be where it needs to be. Then I can not have all these things on my plate, and then I'll be happy and complete idol. See, idol's not necessarily the bad things. It are the, it's the good thing. Because the idol tells us, if you just have this, 
you'll be satisfied. But all along, God is saying, no, I'm the source of all satisfaction. I found this quote by C.S. Lewis. I love it. Here's what he says. The man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. See, idols tell us, worship this, and you'll have meaning, fulfillment. When all along, God has promised he's the source of everlasting joy. So step one in our cycles, the people rebel. They turn to idols. Here's step two in our cycles process. God gets angry. Look at verse 14 of chapter two. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So when God's people put other things in, in God's place, he gets very angry. It infuriates him. And, and it's like, well, God, why would you get angry about that? Because here's what God knows. He has perspective. He knows that idols don't satisfy. And as his children start looking to idols, it becomes this rat race of cycles of disobedience that actually make things worse. And God's anger is kindled towards that. See, God knows he's the source of all joy. He knows he's the source of all satisfaction, and he knows what happens when his children start pursuing idols. Therefore, he gets angry. One of the things I want us to see, though, that his anger is actually an extension of his love. So God gets angry, and here's what happens. He gives them over to their pursuit. And I want us to hear this. One of the ways that God, because we think of God's anger as in like lightning bolt is going to strike him dead. One of the ways that God gets angry and will discipline us is to let us have what we think we want. This has been a rough week for me. I worked with a couple for, and they don't go to church here anymore, um, for a year or two. And this couple, both of them brought in some really destructive things into their marriage. Um, some sexual addiction, and they never worked through it. And then eventually in their marriage, it kind of all came out, and both of them ended up making some really poor decisions. And we kind of had half-hearted repentance. But eventually it was like, no, we can, we can just fix this. And so they kind of, they, they went and they moved away. Um, and I just got a call this week that it's happened again. And what's happened is this constant pursuit of what they don't have. And it's out of this idolatrous heart of if I could just have something else, then I will be satisfied. And, and so the, the woman has completely walked away now from her husband and is playing out the story of Jose, if you're familiar with this, and chasing after a bunch of men. And God hasn't struck her with lightning. She hasn't been in a car wreck or anything like that. Here's what I believe the Lord is doing. You want that? Have it. Because God knows that idols and sin leads to destruction. And sometimes the best thing is to let people have what they think they want. And so God gives them over to it. And here's what we see in the next cycle. Because they start chasing that, and they now become oppressed by the enemies. Verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. 
as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. Notice the active, I want to show you to see this, the active hand of God in allowing them and almost making sure they don't find victory. God wants them to feel the weight of their decision. But that idea that the word used to describe giving them over is translated in the Bible as God's providential hand of care. Destruction of them is actually coming with love. The worst thing God could do is let them just have their idols and not feel the consequences of it. Destruction is going to be God's loving hand towards them because God knows that sin does not play fair and that some lessons are best learned the hard way. Like the time I carried a cat by the tail. I've only done it once. <laughs> so the natural progression of sin is to destroy, or as Jesus would say, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And so God says to Israel, hey, you want that? Go for it. Let's see how this plays out. And over a, a period of time, Israel now becomes in bondage and in slavery to this nation. And they are absolutely miserable. One guy I met with recently said this, quote, I have everything that a guy dreams of, and I'm miserable. Because God knows idols don't satisfy. So he tells Israel, you want them? Go for it. And Israel chases, the people come in, another nation comes in, they occupy them, and then here's what happens in the next cycle. The people cry out. Look at verse 15, the second part. And they were in terrible distress. Another part in Judges in verse 2-4, it says, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these things, basically called out the rebellion, all, to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and they wept. So the goal of God giving them over to their sin, the goal of God giving them over to their enemies is that people would realize and, and kind of feel the full weight of their rebellion and that they would cry out to God. But what we're going to find out in the book of Judges is they are tears in vain. How many of you were, uh, can remember where you were on 9-11? America, raise your hand. Can remember where you were when you're seeing those images of those planes Come in. I was thinking about this week as I was, as I was, a couple weeks ago as I was studying this. And I remember watching this. And, and I remember the news afterwards. I remember thinking like everything is going to change. Right? This, this, this tragedy rocked our country. It rocked a generation. It brought questions about God and life and death. And, and for a lot of religious church, kind of church leaders, the, the thinking was, well, maybe this will shock our country back into repentance and to God. Right? And, and at first it appears like it because here's what happens. And I don't know if you remember this. The week after 9-11, churches were full. I was, I was reading some articles from, from that time period. And, and um, this was a quote by a, a pastor down in Texas, Fellowship Church. It's the largest, one of the largest churches in the country. Here's what he said. After 9-11, we had 20-odd thousand people showing up. 20,000 people showing up. He says, the largest crowd in the history of our church. But it didn't last long. Here's what he says. I was disappointed somewhat that, that more didn't stick because we dropped to 16 or 17,000 the next week. Poor guy. And then the weekend after that, 14,000. So this tragedy strikes, and there's all of a sudden it's like, God, God help us. And, and so people flock to church. And remember, church is the answer, right? 
They flock to church, but then a week or two goes by and it's like, eh, okay, we're good now. And that's what we see in Israel played out, and I probably am safe to say that's what we see in our lives played out. God, help! Okay, I'm good now, God, thanks. See, here's what the Bible teaches. There's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And when we see this phrase that Israel cries out, I want us to understand that this is not this godly sorrow of like, God, we failed to do what you've asked. We're going to come back. We're going to repent. We're going to change everything. This is a, God, we're, uh, we got this problem because these enemies keep beating us and we need your help type of sorrow. Israel cries out because of their suffering, not because they've walked away from God. Here's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians to this people. He says this, as it is, I rejoice because Paul had dealt with some, some big thing. They, were, they were kind of addressed an area of sin in their church. He says, I rejoice not because you were grieved. So Paul's goal in pointing out, wasn't that they just feel bad, but that you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So I want us to understand this idea of crying out or, or, or grief. The Bible calls it worldly grief or godly grief or worldly sorrow or godly sorrow. Here's what godly sorrow is. Godly sorrow is I've sinned against God. I'm facing the consequences. I'm going to turn back to Jesus as my only hope through this. He's my righteousness and he will be the one that will deliver me out of this. It's complete turning back to God. Worldly sorrow is completely selfish and concerned about the personal cost of sin, about saving face. And it's instead of turning to Jesus for that, it's in a reliance on themselves or something else. Here's what I've learned as I talk to people. Most people in our nation know they are broken. Most people know they are broken. Brad said, uh, we are talking before, and he said he's watching a, a documentary this week on Netflix on, on the band Metallica, right? And these, these big kind of rock dudes. And he said, what was interesting in this, in this documentary about them is unintentionally they start revealing that they are broken. And Brad said it almost was like they were little boys crying out for help. Everyone knows they're broken. Godly grief says I'm broken. I need something outside of myself to heal that. Worldly grief says I'm broken. I must fix it. It's a turning to self. Because here's what I see often. I've, I come across people, they want to talk to me. They feel terrible about their brokenness. They, they know it. They feel terrible about their uncontrolled spending. They feel terrible about their eating disorder. They hate their depression. They know they have marriage problems. They, they know they're having emotional affairs on their spouse. They know they have a sexual addiction, which, by the way, not just a guy problem. One of the lies that we've said in church is that sexual addictions are guy problems. They're, they're people problems. We have a lot of girls suffering through sexual addiction that think they're a freak because that's only a guy thing. Wrong. It's a people thing. They know the brokenness, but here's what happens. Instead of, I'm broken, 
I need the righteousness and the love that Jesus offers. Here's what they say. I'm broken, but I must defeat it. I'm broken, but I have got to fix myself. And so what they do is they turn it inside and they say, well, I'm just going to hate myself. I'm going to beat myself up about it. I'm going to have this feeling that I'm worthless. And this feeling of shame and unworthiness creeps in and they become enslaved to that. See, worldly sorrow leads to death because it turns to us as the one to heal that. While true freedom of the gospel is offered. But the thing that keeps this cycle of worldly sorrow going is this feeling that if I actually open up and share who I really am, they will not accept me. People will reject me. So the decision is I will just stay in the sense of brokenness. And we say things like, I'm serious this time. I'm going to beat it. I'm just going to try harder and then I'll finally conquer this. And it's the same cycle because it's saying, I We'll just try harder. Have you tried several times repenting of the same thing and tried to follow Christ in that area of your life but keep falling back into it? Have you tried to remedy the situation by determination and willpower and seen little victory? That's the definition of spiritual bondage. But worldly sorrow says, I must take that to my grave. I can never tell anyone else about that. Here's what the Bible says. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Hill City, do you have the guts to admit that you're broken? Do you have the guts to admit my life's not where I need it to be? My heart's not where I want it to be? As godly grief says, I'm broken. That's why I need Jesus and that's why I need Christians to encourage me in that. Worldly grief says, I can't tell anyone, I'm going to fix it. But the good news of the gospel is God meets you where you are in that. And upon reliance of him starts to lead you in victory. Here's what I'm going to tell you guys. I'm not going to tell you to try harder. I'm going to ask you to be honest about your sin and brokenness and confess it to someone and say, now's the time I'm going to deal with that. We had a lot of young people here. I talked to the young people and you can, you can self-identify that. Now's the time. Don't wait. Don't take your addiction into your marriage, one, the marriage you'll have one day. Kill it now. Don't take your pursuit of pleasing other people into your marriage. Kill it now. Don't take that area of bondage into um, being a parent. Kill it now while it's young. So we're going to see that disobedience and apathy and brokenness, it's a slippery slide. So Israel cries out to God. 
And we see in this cycle, and it's kind of a pseudo-repentance. And here's what happens is they cry out to God, God responds, and the fifth step in this series of cycles is that God sends a judge to deliver. In verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. This is going to be the best part of this uh, series on judges. We're going to have some really cool stories. Now, as we think about the judges, God sends judges. Please don't picture Judge Judy in a black robe. These are not judges in the sense of like in a courtroom hitting, hitting a thing like that. These are bad people. So as, as we look at some of these stories in the next few weeks of judges, each week I'm going to kind of characterize one. And one of them is like Mel Gibson Braveheart type guy. I mean, face painted the whole deal. Um, one, of them's, one of them's like a Clint Eastwood character. who's just cool and just kind of walks in and all of a sudden just, just you know, kicks butt and takes names. Uh, we're going to even see the Duke long before the Duke ever arrived back in the book of Judges as he comes in. But what's going to happen is God's going to send these judges some great stories in this. Um, and these judges are going to come and they're going to defeat the enemies. God is going to supply their need. And I want you to hear that. He's not going to say, okay, people, you cried out to God. Now you go defeat people. God is going to send someone outside of themselves that will go and defeat their enemies. And it's a, it's a way to point us at Jesus. I'm not going to ask you to try harder. I'm going to ask you to believe in the one that has come to defeat sin. So God sends this provision for Israel in the sense of a judge to deliver them. And hear me, it's not contingent on Israel's performance. They're going to continue to be wicked, but God is going to supply their need. Romans 5 eight. God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we're going to see in the book of Judges that this judge is going to point us to Jesus, who is going to come in our lives and defeat sin. And then you go back to the cycle, if you can throw it up there again. The, the judge comes, the judge delivers the enemy, and then for a while we have peace in the land. That's the second part of this. The people are at peace, but the problem is that peace does not last for long because eventually the judge dies and we have the same cycle a generation fails to follow. Look at verse uh, 17. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. And they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. We have a great story next week from one of these judges. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Verse 19, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. You see the slide, they were more corrupt, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because these people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to attest Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations not driving them out complete or quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. And so we see this cycle, and it will play over for every generation for about 350 years, this same cycle will happen. Verse, chapter 3 of Judges, we'll wrap this up. Verse 5. 
So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, which will now be known as the Parasites because I can't pronounce that, that word, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And their daughters, they took themselves for wives. Remember God's command? Drive them out, don't marry them. And their daughters, they took themselves for wives. And their own daughters, they gave their sons and they served the gods. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rithiam, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rithiam eight years. And that's going to lead us to our story next week. Here's what we're going to find about the book of Judges. The book is not ultimately about Israel. It's not ultimately about us. It's a book about God and his faithfulness to keep his covenant with a rebellious people. See, the goal of this book is to point us to Jesus and not ourselves. In the book of Judges, we'll see God's righteousness and holiness. We'll see it very clearly. We'll see what happens when God gets mad. And in the book of Judges, we'll see our sin and our brokenness. It'll be on display, and I think you'll find yourself in every story. But in the book of Judges, we'll also see the mercy and grace of God towards a rebellious people. And God will continually supply their greatest need. Here's my prayer for us. I pray that these, uh, these stories play out in front of us these next few weeks. That our affections for Jesus would be stirred. And we look to him as our only deliverer and not ourselves. So Christians, quit trying harder. Quit trying harder. Quit thinking you can fix yourself. Quit saying, well, just now I'm going to do it. Just cry out and say, I've made a mess. I need Jesus. As rebellious as we are, God invites us to his table. I made this practice of communion it causes us to have no confidence in ourselves or our own righteousness or our own performance. And may our hope be, as we dip the bread and the juice, may our hope be in Jesus' blood and righteousness that he's our deliverer. Let's pray.